Hi, thanks for joining us. Welcome to the Antarctic Report podcast. I'm Nicholas O'Flaherty, editor of the Antarctic Report, an online portal dedicated to all things about Antarctica. Each week I talk to an outstanding scientist or adventurer, a writer, an historian, environmentalist, policymaker, people who actually work down on the ice itself. In fact, anyone with a real connection to Antarctica and a compelling story to tell. The ice sheets of Antarctica and Greenland drain into the sea via ice streams, zones of ice that move faster than surrounding ice on the ice sheet. Some streams in Antarctica flow as fast as 2 kilometres per year. Water often lubricates the flow of the ice streams over the bedrock below, as the high pressure at that depth lowers the freezing point. In the summer of 1969-1970, radio echo sounding flights over the West Antarctic ice sheet identified for the first time a number of ice streams entering the Ross Ice Shelf. One of those ice streams was subsequently named the Willans Ice Stream, in honour of US glaciologist Ian Willans. This week in our podcast, we speak to Professor Helen Amanda Fricker of the Scripps Institution of Oceanography at the University of California, San Diego. In 2007, Helen led a team that discovered an active subglacial water system under the Willans Ice Stream. They used the data from NASA's ISAT satellite. The hydrological system consisted of several interconnected subglacial lakes, one of which was named Lake Willans. Helen Amanda Fricker became one of the primary investigators in the Willans Ice Stream Subglacial Access Research Drilling Project, or WIZARD. The team spent many years devising a safe sampling procedure for subglacial lakes. Contamination in the drilling process could cast doubt on any life found, as well as run the risk of introducing invasive organisms into the lake. Finally, in January 2013, the wizard team successfully drilled down into Lake Willans and obtained the first sample ever retrieved directly from a subglacial lake in Antarctica. Helen Amanda Fricker, welcome to the Antarctic Report. Thank you very much. So Helen, you're a glaciologist. Can you tell us what, what, what is it that you do? That's right, yes. Um, so I'm a glaciologist. Um, I work in the geophysics department, um, IGPP, at Scripps Institution of Oceanography. So I use uh, satellite remote sensing, primarily uh, radar and laser altimetry, to help us understand how the ice sheets, um, predominantly in Antarctica, but also a little bit in Greenland, um, are changing. Um, and so how the, um, the elevation, which can translate to volume and then mass of the ice sheets, uh, change with time, and what processes may be um, contributing to mass loss from the ice sheets. So does that mean you get to fly around an aircraft or you mainly sit back at the lab and um, interpret the data? Right. So I actually um, do not go down to Antarctica myself because I have three children. Um, so I stay home and I, um, am in, I send students to do that part. So, um, yeah, we, we have um, an airborne project that we've um, been collecting data over one of the ice shelves. Um, and there's other instruments that are that are being flown 
um, periodically over the ice sheet as well as part of a project called Icebridge, which is a NASA project which I'm involved in. Um, so, yeah, we have a combination of airborne ground surveys and then satellite data, which we put together to understand the picture of how the ice sheets are changing. You've had some involvement in the research of active subglacial lakes. What exactly are they? That's right. So, yes, yeah, so underneath the uh, the Antarctic ice sheet, there are um, a, a number, well, uh, on the order of 120 to 150 uh, subglacial lakes. And uh, now these are, uh, it's basically there's in the bedrock, in the depressions of the bedrock underneath the ice, we have water that has accumulated um, and it's sitting there just like a lake um, anywhere on, on the ice. Um, ice-free uh, land surface um, is the same, but in this case we've just got an ice sheet on top of it. So there's um, pooled water sitting in lakes underneath Antarctica. So Antarctica is not completely frozen to the bed everywhere. There are some places where there's actually water sitting there in between the bedrock and the ice. Why is that water not frozen? Uh, so it's a combination of reasons, uh, pressure melting, because you have that weight of ice above it, you're actually changing the melting point um, of of the water, and or the, the melting point of the ice, and then also we have geothermal heat flux coming um, from underneath, so it's sort of being hit from both sides, uh, from, from top and the bottom, and um, very small amounts of meltwater are produced at the base of the ice sheet, that's on the order of millimeters per year, but the Antarctic ice sheet covers a very large area. So if you integrate very, very small amount over a very large area, you end up with uh, significant amounts of meltwater. And that meltwater pools in these uh, depressions in the bedrock. And recently, well, in the last 10 years, we've discovered that um, this water moves from one lake to another. Um, and we can see that because we can actually look at the surface of the ice responding to where the water is moving. Okay, so that's what an active subglacial lake means, yeah? Exactly. So the water is actually actively moving from one lake to the next lake downstream. And in response, you see the surface of the ice sheet. Um, it goes up when the water arrives in the lake and it goes down when the lake is draining. Um, and so you can use satellite um, altimetry to map where the ice sheet is going up and down. What units of measurement are we talking about? Like um, the ice uh, sheet above these lakes is going up and down by order of what? Order of meters. Um, oh gosh, so meters. the largest, yeah, it's really large actually. So that um, one of the largest lakes that we studied in our initial sort of study of the Willens Ice Stream was around about ten meters of surface um, change. Gosh, ten meters. Which is a, a very, very large signal. I mean, it was it was a jaw-dropping moment when we looked at that uh, time series on the desktop. Um, and then there's another lake um, higher up on the plateau that had a surface um, drawdown of something on the order of 50 to 60 meters. So these are very large uh, features. You see them in satellite imagery as well after they've drained um, some of them. Um, but then other ones are only on the order of sort of two to three meters, so they're much harder to, to see um, unless you're using precise kind of height measuring techniques. That's quite fascinating. I mean, I, I guess if the ice sheet were land and land was moving by 10 or 50 meters, that would be quite extraordinary. So I'm just, you know, just making that comparison. Is that normal behavior across the, say, the West Antarctic and the, or the East Antarctic ice sheet? 
they are you know the surface of the, at the top is moving all over the place at that sort of uh, order of magnitude up and down yeah but i mean but it i mean the total area that's covered by subglacial lakes is is rather small compared to the total area of antarctica so i mean it's it's not a large signal in the grand scheme of things but um but yeah there are pockets of uh, the ice sheet where there are subglacial lakes and they are indeed, um, we are seeing signals like this. You mentioned the, the Willans ice stream. Uh, tell us about Lake Willans. Yeah, so Lake Willans was one of the lakes um, in the sort of first um, sort of system of lakes that we discovered back in uh, 2006. Um, and we had a, a paper that came out in Science which documented this widespread active subglacial water system, which is all over um, these two ice streams that drain into the Ross ice shelf, so the Willans and Mercer ice streams. And we found um, a lot of lakes, I think it was about 15 um, of them in these two ice streams, and it was very low down on the ice stream towards uh, where, the, where the ice stops being grounded and floats to form the Ross ice shelf. And the Willans, Lake Willans was just one of the lakes that we, um, that we named. We actually named uh, four of them, um, they were the largest ones of the of the 15 that we found, um, and two of them were next to ridges that had already been named. So we called those after the ridges, which was Subglacial Lake Engelhart and Subglacial Lake Conway, and then two were sort of in the middle of or the center line of of the major ice stream. So we called one Subglacial Lake Mercer after Mercer ice stream, and then we called the other one Subglacial Lake Willans after Willans ice stream. So that was where the names came from. You have uh, been part of a team that's been drilling into that lake. Yeah. So, so soon after we um, we discovered them in the laser altimetry, we were lucky enough to very quickly team up with a colleague, uh, Slavik Tulicic, uh, uh, University of California, Santa Cruz, and he had just been funded to put GPS on some lakes, and he actually was going to go to another system of lakes. But when he heard about our lakes, he was like, "Oh, they sound really, really great. Um, maybe we can ask NSF if we can switch our." Um, sort of field site because where you'll get these lakes there's, there's more of the lakes in the place where we discovered them and it seemed like it was a very linked system and it would be very under, interesting glaciologically um, so NSF gave the go ahead to change his field uh, uh, plan and so he ended up putting GPS, within about six months of us discovering these lakes we had GPS on them okay. which was very important because that meant that um, we could actually measure them continuously because I only sampled every um, three or four times a year. Mm-hmm. Um, so we could really understand the long-term behavior. And then uh, towards the end of that field program, so two or three years of um, observing um, and also looking at how the lakes affected, um, how, when they drained, how that affected the velocity, how fast the ice was flowing, we decided to put in a big proposal with more people involved to drill into one of the lakes. Okay. Um, and this project was called Wizard. Uh, Wizard was Willans Ice Stream Subglacial Access Research Drilling. Okay. I did not come up with that acronym. <laughs> <laughs> um, and this became a big project. Um, it was about five years long. We got an extra year of funding as well um, to drill into Subglacial Lake Willans um, after doing some geophysics to try and determine how deep the water was. And then we followed the where the water would drain um, underneath the ice sheet and where it would emerge at the grounding line, and we drilled there as well in okay. the subsequent years. So there were two drilling seasons. What year are we talking about, Helen? 
So we drilled into Lake Willans in 2013. Um, and then I believe it was two years later for the grounding lines. How unique was that drilling project? I understand, was that the first time that, a, that, a, that there'd been a successful drilling down into a subglacial lake? Yeah, the first time that we'd actually, yes, it was. The, I mean, there were, the, there's been drilling into Lake Vostok. Uh, the Russians have led a project there for uh, the past several years. And then there's been another drilling effort uh, by the British Antarctic Survey and partners um, into subglacial Lake Ellsworth. Um, but I believe that the drilling into subglacial Lake Willans is the first time that we actually penetrated right through into the um, the subglacial water and managed to take samples um, of the water and the, and the bed below. So, yeah, I believe it was the first. Not that it was a race or anything. Yeah, sure, <laughs> sure, absolutely. When drilling into that lake, I think there's a lot of preparations necessary when, you, when, when you're trying to extract the sample because you could end up contaminating with the drill. Absolutely. So the clean, yes, the clean access drilling was a very, very long drawn out process and it all had to be passed through. We had to make sure you're we obeying you know, the right, correct protocol and and things like that. So yeah, it was very, very much uh, at the forefront of the planning all the time, all the way along. So yeah, yeah so they so they drilled in and uh, took um, some, you know, the, the drill hole was open for um, something like three days and they took many samples of the water and different things, different applications. Now those samples have been analysed and what, uh, what have we learned? Uh, so uh, a suite of things. I mean, I think the biggest um, discovery that came out of that was from the biology, um, basically that there is a microbial ecosystem underneath the ice sheet, mm-hmm. um, and really we didn't know much about that system before because we had no observations of any of the water there before, um, and so that was a, a paper that came out in Nature in when was that? I think it was 2014. So this was a big project led by the bio, the, the the Wizard Project had. Um, a biology component to it, a glaciology component, and then a geophysics component. Mm-hmm. So um, okay. it was very integrated, um, interdisciplinary. It's an extraordinary environment, isn't it? Because we're talking about a number of things. It's completely dark. There's a there's high pressure exactly. down there. It's and yeah. it's a, it's quite salty water. Is that correct? Um, it's. I don't think it's. Very, I mean, it's a little. It's not as salty as seawater. It has a little bit okay. of salinity to it, but it's yeah. Okay. Um, but yeah, I mean, but it is a very unique environment for um, for micro um, organisms to to adapt to, and you know, this is the first evidence that uh, that you know there is life in these lakes. The location of Lake Willans is not too far from the Ross Ice Shelf. That's right. Yeah, it's um, yeah, it's several hundred kilometers upstream. Um, it's not very far, in yeah, it's. it's the grounding line is, um, I think, about 120 kilometres downstream of Lake Willans. So, right. so when we get to the grounding line, we are um, basically now we're on floating ice, where the Ross Ice Shelf has formed over the Ross Sea, and the the ice that's floating on the Ross Sea is part of the ice sheet still, but it's an ice shelf, and you have a cavity where the ocean can um, interact underneath the ice sheet. The Ross Ice Shelf is, um, I mean, it's basically it's the largest ice shelf in Antarctica, which is why we're we're very, you know, it's, it 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 does, but it does hold back a, a 
large amount of um, grounded ice. Mm-hmm. Um, it drains ice from both West Antarctica and East Antarctica. Mm-hmm. Um, right now, it's fairly stable. I mean, we know that from 20 years of altimetry measurements looking at the ice thickness. It's not changed a lot. I mean, other ice shelves around the west coast of Antarctica in the Amundsen Sea are thinning significantly. But um, but over on the Ross ice shelf, we are not seeing patterns like that. So, um, but there is definitely a potential that um, you know the the conditions could change, the oceanography could change. We could get a incursion of uh, warmer water coming underneath. And therefore, you know, we could see changes in the Ross Ice Shelf. And we do know that it has undergone um, large changes in the past, like a sort of century timescales. Um, so we, we really believe that it's worth looking at systems that are currently stable to learn um, things about those systems as well as the going to the places that are changing. Sure. So the the Ross Ice Shelf, it's the largest ice shelf on the planet? It's actually the size of Spain, Okay. Um, approximately the size of California. Gosh. So, okay. um, right. yeah, it's a large, large ice shelf. If you look at some maps of Antarctica, the grounding line of the Ross Ice Shelf, actually the delineation of the ice shelf, uh, the, yeah, the ice shelf and, and, and the, the, what is that, I guess, the bedrock coast of Antarctica. We're fairly confident where that is now? Yeah, we've mapped it with uh, various different techniques. Um, probably the most powerful technique for mapping grounding lines is uh, a, technique, a technique called uh, SAR, um, Synthetic Aperture Radar uh, Interferometry. Mm-hmm. Um, and so we've used those data in comparison with some laser altimetry data, which is taken at different times in the tidal cycle. So you can see where the ice shelf goes up and down mm-hmm. on the floating side. Um, and then also um, some satellite imagery to sort of um, interpolate in between. And we have a pretty good um, delineation now of the grounding line of the, of the Ross. The grounding line that is, I guess, the farthest point from open water, how many kilometres yeah. are we talking about? Um, it's about 1,000. 1,000 kilometres, that's extraordinary. Yeah. So, so that would be a world of it's seawater, it's, it's connected with the rest of the ocean system on the planet. It, it would be completely dark, one assumes. Uh, exactly. Yeah. I mean, there is no way that light can get in there. Right. And how, how um, incidentally, how thick is the floating ice shelf at that grounding line point above it? Um, so depending on exactly where you are, it's something like, um, between 800 and 1200 meters. Right. Okay. So approximately a kilometer, give or take. Yep. So it's a yeah, lot, something lot, like a kilometer. Right. Exactly. Right. Lot, yeah. lot, that's a lot of ice. And so the, yeah. um, certainly ocean, the ocean currents do get under the, they do circulate underneath the ice shelf. As far as That's we know. right. So you have this basically this big patch of uh, ocean that is um, that is basically locked underneath um, this this huge mass of ice, and so we call it the sub ice shelf cavity. Mm-hmm. Um, Walter Monk here at Scripps uh, refers to them as um, the caverns, which I love. <laughs> so mysterious. So the the sub ice shelf caverns. Basically, it's 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 ocean that's circulating is part of the it's connected to the rest of the world's oceans but it's completely 
cut off, so it's unique in terms of its oceanography. Yeah, okay. Um, and there's there's different um, processes that are occurring in the subice shelf cavity that are contributing to its temperature and salinity patterns. Um, so the thermohaline circulation underneath an ice shelf is very unique. Right, okay. Um, the basal melting and is adding fresh water, and we have many processes going on. So this is really where the ice is interacting with the ocean. In 1911, on the way to the South Pole, um, as Amundsen's party approached the Transantarctic Mountains from the barrier, as they called the Ross Ice Shelf, one of the Norwegians, Olaf Bjarland, recorded in his diary that they heard a distant thundering noise that went on for a few hours at different times each day. He speculated then whether that noise could be the tide raising and lowering the ice shelf. They were, of course, near the grounding line of the Ross Ice Shelf. Right. Yeah. Yes, so, so, yeah, I mean, yeah, I'm, I'm aware of that, and I think that possibly is the first time anybody knew anything about tides yeah. um, on ice shelves. But yeah, so the ice shelf goes up and down with the tides, um, and it responds instant, instantaneously. So the minute the tide goes up, the ice shelf goes up as well. Yeah, right. Um, and so we can actually use this to improve tide model. You know, we can actually use the surface measurements from GPS and altimetry on the ice shelf surface to improve tide models because yeah. it's all, you know, um, responding to the same signal. So, yeah, so this is, um, so, so all around the grounding line, we see flexure on the seaward side and no flexure on the landward side. Yeah. How, um, how, how big are the tides down there, incidentally? Um, so down in the Ross Sea, it's on the order of uh, one and a half meters or something like yeah. that. Okay. So it's not a huge signal. Yeah. Um, there are much, much larger tides um, in the other ice shelf, the Filsteroni ice shelf. But, um, but yeah. You are part of a program called the Ro- Rosetta program. Do you want to tell us a bit about that? So Rosetta, yeah, this is a project um, to improve our understanding of basically the fact that there is an unmapped patch of ocean that's as large as the size of Spain um, is something that we felt needed uh, to be remedied. And so we needed to go and um, fly over the ice shelf in a regular grid um, to collect data about the ice thickness and the surface elevation and also um, some gravity data which we can use to um, invert to understand the bathymetry underneath the ice shelf because that's one of the things that's because the ice shelf is there you can't go in there and do like seafloor mapping like you can do everywhere else in the ocean Mm -hmm. Um, you need to come up with with clever ways to get to see through that ice Um, so they fly a gravimeter which flies over the ice shelf as part of the um, instrument suite Okay, so um, this, this, is a, this, is an, this, is a, this is an aircraft, isn't it, That's, that, that has this gear yes. on board, yeah? Okay. That's right, yeah. So we fly a, uh, a Hercules C-130 um, aircraft out of McMurdo mm-hmm. and multiple flights um, over two field seasons, and hopefully there'll be a third field season to complete the flights, to complete the grid. Um, and we are collecting data um, in a regular grid fashion, and we've, we've got um, a really nice data set. Um, and and when so when far. right so so there's uh, there's three seasons all up with Rosetta and at the end of all of that that will be a giant leap in terms of understanding the world beneath the ice shelf. That's right because yes because before that we only had data from a survey which was carried out in the seventies uh, called Riggs um, mm-hmm. and that was um, very very sparse grid 
of data that um, basically seismic sounding um, every 50 kilometers or so. Um, and now we're going to have a high-density grid all the way along the ice shelf, along track. Um, so rather than a few points, we're going to have continuous lines on a regular grid of these data. So, yeah, and we're, we're actually using the RIGS points to constrain. I mean, it's not that the RIGS data were, were bad. It's just that they were sparse. Sure, So, yeah. So we'll end up with a sea chart that has the bathymetry of, of the seabed. Uh, yeah, so exactly. We're going to get we, we're going to get the shape of the ocean floor underneath the Ross ice shelf. So it's as if you remove the whole ice shelf uh, and go in with a ship to do sonar. I mean, it's it, it it it's going to give us a picture of where the troughs are and the topography and where the crests are, and we'll have a really nice um, idea of the structure. We already have a preliminary map, which is really beautiful, um, showing us some of the features underneath um, the ice shelf that we didn't know were there before. Have there been any surprises? No, I wouldn't say there's anything. We've just delineated. I mean, there's, there's some things that we knew about um, that, that have been delineated a bit more accurately. I mean, there's definitely um, some structure in there that we didn't know existed because we just didn't have the sampling. Um, but I wouldn't say there's, like, a new... Um, we haven't found, like, anything totally surprising yet. I've seen some great photos from the Rosetta program. There's that uh, ice pod connected to the uh, Hercules. What, what The ice pod does what exactly? So the ice pod is basically just a fancy name for the, um, it's like the the payload um, for the, the attaches to the plane. And, and in that is the, um, the laser altimeter, the radar, the gravimeter. It all just packs very neatly, neatly into this, into this pod. Okay. Um, which you can then mount on the aircraft. So, yeah, it's basically a um, a, a nice way, sort of a, a way of um, integrating all of these instruments into one platform. How much do we know about the marine biology or the marine life a long way from open water underneath the Ross Ice Shelf? It must be fairly unique. Uh, yeah, well, we found a fish <laughs> when we drilled um, at the grounding line as part of Wizard. Um, we actually found a fish, and people were very surprised about this. Like, this basically means that, you know, there's a whole ecosystem down there that we didn't realize existed. How, how, right big, there. how, how big was the fish? You know, it was quite big. It was like a, a, a good two or three inches long. I mean, okay. it was definitely a, um, but it was, yeah, it was a, a really uh, quite surprising thing. It basically just came up with the camera because um, the camera had a light on it. And, I mean, it must have been attracted to the light. It's probably the first time it had ever seen light in its whole life. So, um, yeah, it was it was really very surprising. Is there any other programs that are in the pipeline for further research of the Ross Ice Shelf and the world beneath it? One of the things I haven't told you about yet is um, something that we did which was very novel. Um, out on the front of the ice shelf, we managed to deploy some floats. Um, mm-hmm. They're called Alamo floats. And we threw them basically out of a plane. Mm-hmm. Um, and these are, and we put them all the way along the front of the ice shelf. So they're right up against um, the ice front. They're free floating. And yep. so they, they um, basically, they profile once a day and they telemeter um, the data back to us in real time. So we um, can analyze where they've been, what they're seeing. We can program them to tell them no, it doesn't look great. The sea, we can see the sea ice from the satellite altimetry stay at the bottom where it's safe. And we, we could program them in real time, which is really cool. So yep. um, you can 
have a little bit of control about where they go. So we got some really nice data from there. Um, we got over 200 dives out of the six floats. Um, okay. And we got some very nice pictures of how the water masses are interacting with the ice shelf, which is like first time measurements of this kind of thing, which is, so I think that that is a kind of a, um, basically a, a pilot study. I mean, we only had six of these things, um, but we need to do a lot more oceanography and make more measurements in this cavity. Hopefully we can get instruments going in right under the cavity as well at some point and try to get an, an idea of the water um, masses and how they're interacting and changing with time. What happened to the floats, by the way? Were they retrieved or they just kept floating? Or So they're still there. Um, so a couple of them we lost contact with. Um, and there are some that are basically part for the winter now. Okay, um, so they're caught up with sea there. ice, yeah? Yeah, so the sea ice over the top of them now, but hopefully um, the, the hope is that they will come out of winter mode and we can uh, work with them again. Um, yeah. But we've lost, there's a couple of them that we've lost, I think three of them we've lost completely. Yeah. And the other three, we, which is pretty good, you know, 50% success yeah. rate sure. for one season. Sure. Um, it's a very high risk uh, measurement. Sure. So. You mentioned getting some equipment underneath, some something that would actually float and go underneath the shelf. There are plans for that? Well, people, various groups have been making uh, these sort of sub, well, auto-sub, which is what the British Antarctic Survey called theirs. I know that um, the University of Tasmania have made one. Um, basically, these are kind of gliders or, um, you, or basically they're remotely operated vehicles that are going to go underneath into the cavity. What's the so range? Is, How far in could they go? So I think the auto sub went in about 100 kilometres, something like that. Okay. Um, but they have problems because they they can only go within a... There's a threshold where if they detect anything in its way, like the ice base rises up suddenly or down, then they have to... Um, turn around so there's you have to know a little bit about what you're going into to be able to figure out exactly where to send it yeah so that's why it's going to be really nice because we're going to have this ice draft map and the bathymetry map and then we can send in this float um eventually when i mean i think that's where the next sort of decade of ice ocean measurements is going we're going to try and get measurements from inside the cavity okay fantastic have you been to antarctica at all I have. I went to Antarctica um, when I was a PhD student um, mm -hmm. at the University of Tasmania, and I went down with the Australian Antarctic Division, and I went to the Amory Ice Shelf, um, and we collected, which is um, a smaller ice shelf, but it's still considered a, it's, it's one of the three large ice shelves, but it's the smallest of the three. Okay. Um, so the Ross, Phil Schneroni, and then the Amory. Um, so the Amory is over in East Antarctica at about 70 degrees uh, east. Mm -hmm. It's basically right south below India mm -hmm. um, and it's where the there's two bases uh, Australian bases uh, one to the west and one to the east mm -hmm. uh, Mawson and Casey and they um, basically there's a lot of field work done on the Amory um, because they're close to it and we did a GPS survey out on the ice shelf to calibrate radar altimetry um, and then subsequently we found um, a lot of ice that had accreted onto the base of the ice shelf from underneath, part mm -hmm. of this thermohaline circulation, and we drilled into that. So this this was actually a drilling um, program as well, probably about 10 or so years before the wizard drilling, but it was into an ice shelf. Mm -hmm. 
um, where we drilled into the marine ice layer and put moorings in and got information about the water masses that way. So you can go in by drilling a hole and putting instruments in, or you can go in from the front. Okay. Um, so the Australian program was, was doing it the other way with the drilling, which is pretty innovative, actually. Um, and, yeah, they were kind of um, leading the way in many ways. Do you think you're going to get back to Antarctica at some stage? I hope so. I have to finish raising my kids and sure. <laughs> <laughs> getting to the stage that I feel that I can comfortably leave. But I would like to go back for sure. And actually, the, uh, these airborne um, programs are, are quite a, a good way because it's not such a long deployment. Sure. You're not going into the deep field for long periods of time. So possibly there'll be a, a way. I would love to go back, definitely. Fantastic. All right, Helen, that has been very, very interesting. Thank you very much for your time today. Oh, you're welcome. It's been a pleasure. That was Professor Helen Amanda Fricker of the Scripps Institution of Oceanography at the University of California, San Diego. If you'd like to know more about subglacial Lake Willans or the Rosetta Program, check out the episode notes on antarcticreport.com where you'll find more weekly episodes of the Antarctic Report podcast. We'd love to hear from you. If you have a question or comment, email us at info at antarcticreport.com. You can also find us on Twitter at Antarctic Report. If you like what we do, you can review the podcast on iTunes. You'll be helping others to find us. Thanks for listening to the Antarctic Report podcast. See you next time.